What a delightful opportunity and a true privilege and a glorious one at that for us to be able to come together as we are this morning, that things are indeed as well with you and I as they are. The nature of the blessing about us is so grand and magnificent, and it's a privilege that we have to be able to call ourselves Christians and to stand four square on the truth of the Word of God. As was mentioned, the announcements uh, will be away in the gospel meeting next, uh, beginning next Lord's Day morning. It's at the Columbia Church of Christ in Columbia, Kentucky. That meeting will run through Wednesday evening, services at 7 o'clock nightly. So I certainly would covet your prayers with regard to the success of that meeting. And that as uh, I proclaim the, the truth of God, that things may in fact dwell well within the hearts of those that listen. And perhaps many, many good things in years to come might come out of that meeting. I am very appreciative and thankful for those men, as Brother Lester mentioned, not only himself, but also Brother Harold and Brother Jeff, that will be delivering the lessons, teaching the Bible studies next, next Lord's Day. It's a real privilege this congregation has for men who are not only capable, but exceedingly willing to employ their talents in the utilization of the Word of God and to spread forth the gospel in that way. Our lesson this morning is entitled, A Nation in Crisis. You might have, in fact, appreciated that title in the bulletin as it was made available to us this morning. A Nation in Crisis. It does not sound, in fact, a very positive idea. In fact, it sounds a bit foreboding. It sounds as though a dark cloud hangs on the horizon. It sounds as though things into the future, at least with regard to the title, do not look bright. Rather, they look a bit negative and a bit that calls one's attention to appreciate a resounding situation may well be existent upon the horizon. Some introductory thoughts, some initial ideas may point us in a direction to where we shall consider our lesson today. The reading in Leviticus 18 will be that reading to which we will turn our attention shortly. But at least at this point could we appreciate the fact that the Bible opens to us the realization that there is a God in heaven, and that he invariably always does that which is right. God never involves himself to bring about that which is evil. We are told in Psalm 5 verse 4 that he beholds no evil in the sense that he countenances, countenances it not. In Habakkuk 1 verse 13, the great prophet of old said, Thou art of purer eyes than to behold iniquity. God does not bring about that which is evil. He is sinless and He is good. In fact, do we not read in Genesis 18 verse 25, even as Abraham of old declared, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Even Abraham understood well the fact that that which God brings about and that which is a result of his efforts and activities is righteous and good. Centuries later, Ezra, in that amazing prayer he uttered in Ezra 9, the very last verse of that chapter reminds us that there he said, O Lord God, thou art righteous. God always will do that which is right. That idea, in fact, teaches us that throughout the Holy Scriptures, Genesis to Revelation, we see God directing and having a powerful role to play in the affairs of the human family. Four times, in fact three times I should say, in Daniel, the fourth chapter, we read about an occasion where it was directly said, The Most High ruleth in the kingdoms of men. It is still the case, and even Benjamin Franklin uttered it near the outset of the very land in which you and I now have the privilege to dwell. 
that in fact God is the one who brings nations to their crown and their zenith. And he will also be active in the desolation or in the destruction of them as well. God rules in the kingdoms of men. Didn't the psalmist say it so well in Psalm 83 verse 18? On that occasion he said, That thou, Lord, art Lord alone in heaven, and thou rulest over everything. No wonder Jesus then prayed in Matthew the 6th chapter, That thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. When God's will is so completely followed in heaven as it is at the current time and leads to an arena and an array of activities that are completely accordance to His will, what a joyous thing that must be. Wouldn't it be wonderful if there were more of that upon earth? More of a tuning to the frequency of God. More of an interest in living moment by moment, day by day, as individuals and as nations in accordance to the revealed will of heaven. To say those statements is to notice. However, in the Scriptures, that there were some instances where nations found themselves on the short end of God's wrath. Meaning that the time had come when God chose to pour forth His wrath upon them due to their behavior, their conduct, the manner in which they had conducted themselves. In essence, as we begin to see in a moment, those instances described a nation that was in crisis. Let's turn our attention this morning to the Old Testament primarily and look at some of these nations that found themselves in very crisis circumstances. Perhaps some very valiant lessons you and I may be able to learn from them and apply them even to our lives and to our heart today. The first one that we shall consider takes us to, in fact, that very book of Leviticus, but some introductory thoughts might be in order first. By introduction, I mean this. Consider with me where Israel had her beginning. She, in fact, had an exceedingly bright beginning, did she not? She herself was here, a band of slaves in Egypt, serving a far higher power physically than she, and yet God showed His special favor to her. He, in fact, commissioned Moses, Go and bring my people out of Egypt. Moses, though a bit hesitant at first, ultimately did take up the mantle of that commission and proceeded to Egypt, and after ten great plagues came upon that land. Finally, the people came forth. Once they crossed that Red Sea, it left Egypt far behind them. Here was a people now who were free from Egyptian bondage. They had a new start and a new beginning. They were the descendants of Abraham through Jacob and had all the promise of a future ahead of them. A bright beginning indeed. The thought then of when we come to the book of Exodus and see what happened at Sinai, not only did this people experience freedom from Egypt, God gave them laws. They didn't have to come up with their own laws. They didn't have to, by their own scholarly activity, decide what laws would and would not be written in stone, if you will. God, by His finger, wrote laws in stone. God gave this people freedom. He gave them their government. He gave them their laws. He even gave them land in which to dwell. How marvelous God was to this people. In the marvelous nature of that beginning, we begin to see the brightness would only be appreciated as year by year they did give attention to what was necessary to keep that land and to enjoy all those blessings. For might we never forget, God's blessings upon Israel were conditional. 
You will keep this land. You will enjoy these blessings so long as you follow me and you keep my commandments without fail. Over and over again in Deuteronomy, that's the message. Deuteronomy 4 verse 40, 8 verse 1, many other times throughout that book, just to list a few. That perhaps makes it all the more challenging when we begin to see that there were some of the leaders of Israel who were interested in leading the people along that pathway that God had decreed, such men as, jo as Joshua. Joshua was such a notable figure. He actually, after the death of Moses, led the people into that land and divided it once they had conquered it. In Judges chapter 2, beginning in verse number 8, we have a description of what an amazing influence Joshua was. For there, if we may but paraphrase, we learn that Israel was faithful not only through the lifetime of Joshua, but for all of those who served immediately after him. But when that next generation arose, that's when trouble so clearly began to arise. For now, they had forgotten what the conditions were, and they were soon in a position of crisis. With those kinds of ideas said, let's now turn to that text in Leviticus that Jason read for us a few moments ago. In that text, we notice that the issue before Israel in prophecy was this one. Let's revisit the wording again of verse number 22. Thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind. It is abomination. Defile not ye yourselves in any of these things, for in all these the nations are defiled which I cast out before you. And the land is defiled, therefore I do visit the iniquity thereof upon it and the land itself vomiteth out her inhabitants. Let's sketch a moment of history. Who was it that God was referring to here? In verse number 22, and also, I'm sorry, verse number 24, He makes reference to the nations. That wasn't Israel at that point. Who were these nations? And might we observe rather readily, in verse 24 it says, I cast these out before you. These nations, which God here was referencing, were previously the inhabitants of this land, that land of Canaan. But God said, due to their wickedness, their abomination, and their evil, I'm casting them out. Notice, that people was a people in crisis. They were about to lose their land. The nation of Israel was about to come in and take it from them, and never again would they inhabit in power and in might that land that had been theirs before. Those nations, they are mentioned many times in the early part of the Old Testament. I've listed some passages that we shall look at as we study them at least briefly. Maybe the first mention is in Genesis 15, 16. Even to Abraham, God made a very dramatic reference when He said, speaking to Abraham concerning his descendants, He said, they're going to go into captivity, but in the fourth generation they shall come forth. And note how the verse ends. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. It's as though God had in mind a cup. And within that cup was contents that were in proportion to a degree of wickedness. When the cup gets full, I'm kicking them out of the land. When the cup gets sufficiently full of sin, ungodliness, and iniquity, they shall lose this land, and I'm giving it to somebody else. 
The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Early on in the days of Abraham, reference was made to these inhabitants of that land that would later be known as Canaan were ungodly in their activity, in their morality, in the degree of their consideration, in the way that they lived. When the cup got full enough, they would lose it. God would take the land from them and they would be punished. That takes on a heightened understanding when we turn to Deuteronomy 9 verse 5. For one more time, these people are mentioned. Let's look at, though, the way God references them now. Remember, before, the cup was not yet full. In Deuteronomy 9, verse 5, God says, Not for thy righteousness or for the uprightness of thine heart dost thou go to possess their land, but for the wickedness of these nations the Lord thy God doth drive them out from before thee, and that he may perform the word which the Lord swear unto thy fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now we see clearly that as the children of Israel were about to enter into Canaan, God says, this land I'm not giving to you because of your righteousness, because you deserve it. Notice that these nations that inhabited it before, I am, in fact, removing them because of their wickedness. The cup of the Amorites had become full. God was now taking action against those nations, and they, in fact, would be removed forcibly from that land by, of course, the children of Israel themselves. Doesn't that speak volumes about the nature of how full the cup had become? Might we then ask very interestingly about that text we just read. What were some of the abominations of which these Amorites were guilty? we should take careful note of Leviticus chapter 18. The chapter is a bit lengthy to read it in its entirety, but mind I point out that beginning in Leviticus 18 verse number 1 and continuing all the way through verse number 18 or 19 or so is a description of sexual sin. One of the things that had become rampant in Canaan, in that land that would later be known as the Promised Land, the thing that the Amorites, one of the things of which it had become guilty, sexual perversion, immorality of a sexual character. In fact, time and again, he says in this chapter what Israel was not to do, and after he says the various nature of these sins of which they should never be guilty, we again arrive at verse 22. Let's again read verses 22, 24, and then 25 on through 28. Thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind. It is abomination. Defile not ye yourselves in any of these things. For in all these the nations are defiled which I cast out before you. And the land is defiled. Therefore I do visit the iniquity thereof upon it. And the land itself vomiteth out her inhabitants. Ye shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments and shall not commit any of these abominations, neither any of your own nation nor any stranger that sojourneth among you. For all these abominations have the men of the land done, which were before you, and the land is defiled. That the land spew not you out also when ye defile it, as it spewed out the nations that were before you. What a sobering text. Didn't God thus say, this land, those who inhabited it before were guilty of these very sexual perversions, these natures of immorality, and for that reason the land is going to spew them out. 
And Israel, be aware of one more thing. If you're ever guilty of these, it'll spew you out too. That kind of a text is very challenging, isn't it? When we appreciate the fact that God does not tolerate rampant immorality. Any nation, be it ancient Israel, be it the Amorites, be it any other, any nation will ultimately answer to the just and holy God of heaven when they allow that kind of activity to go unchecked and allow it to proceed with rampant increasing character. God's promise to Israel was very plain and straightforward. Do not commit these abominations that these inhabitants of the land before you have done. For if you do, the land will spew you out. The notion of which we had just read, the scene of events again in verse number 22, part of the evil that abounded involved homosexuality, wasn't it? We understand so easily and so well some of the thoughts perhaps on this screen as well. Immorality was going to lead to Israelite nation being in crisis. But what about the parallel of our day? We need not in fact speak very much to know very easily that this kind of activity has gained the ascendancy in recent years, hasn't it? There was a time in our land when it was a shameful thing to admit in public that one was of a homosexual character. Not only is it no longer a shameful thing, it's looked upon at times with a degree of pridefulness and a demand for absolute equality in every regard, even including matters religious in nature. In fact, there were times when it was, such, it was sufficiently clouded that it was rarely even spoken of in a public fashion, but that isn't true any longer. In fact, there are legislations and laws of the land, individuals that openly proclaim it. There are parades around the land in support of it. There are announcements of endorsement toward it. And those who, it would seem, have the indication of opposing it are branded as narrow-minded, intolerant, and in fact, sufficiently closed-minded that they are unwilling to even respect their fellow man. Haven't things changed inconsiderably? And I might submit that the change, in fact, it would seem, may be accelerating. I've listed some things upon the screen for your consideration. Regardless what men think about it, it is abjectly immoral. It doesn't matter what you or I may think about it. The declarations of Scripture have stated very clearly, hasn't it, that this is perversion, just as it was in the days of Moses in the Old Testament. One must then understand in texts such as Romans 1, beginning in verse 26, in the first century era, the Apostle Paul directed words of instruction toward the church in Rome. And from verses 26 to 32 of that chapter, he outlined in clear fashion the nature. This is sinful nature. It is not merely something alternate to be accepted. Later in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11, it was there very forthrightly stated that these had been guilty of this, but now they no longer were. They had repented, they were now washed, they were now sanctified, and had thus brought themselves in reconciliation to God. We learn thus easily that the New Testament inspired individuals taught against homosexuality and did so with a love in their heart and hopes that those who heard would appreciate that this lifestyle is not approved by God. As we revisit that thinking, though, 
What might that mean for our nation? Ancient Israel, as well as the Amorite nation, stood in a moment of crisis. The Amorites were about to lose their land because they supported homosexuality, because they allowed it to proceed unchecked. And Israel, God promised the same would happen to them. Might we now ask about America in the year 2008? Where do you and I stand? We have already noted that in the last 30 years or so, the movement that we call the homosexual movement, now there are numbers of coalitions, numbers of groups that actively work in favor of it at every level of government. Not only that, as it is increasingly put before us, there are lawsuits brought against those who oppose it. There are matters of open compliance that are demanded even in textbooks that your children and mine read in public schools. Sometimes you have opportunity to just take one of those textbooks and read about how homosexuality is discussed. I believe you might be a bit surprised. Our children are encouraged to be indoctrinated and openly accepted. If we as a nation don't turn this ship around, how long will God tolerate it? How long will it be before the cup of the U.S. of A. is full and God no longer is willing to bless us? Only you and I can ultimately make those decisions and turn this ship back toward a direction of rightness and scriptural correctness. If we allow it to proceed unchecked, God will finally take action. Of that we can be assured. And the action that He takes will be a destructive one. We have seen what He promised to do to ancient Israel. We might only ask, Years later, did Israel lose their land? They did. The Babylonians came and took them from it in Second Chronicles 36. And of the sins listed for those that were guilty and for the very reasons they had rejected God's commandments, had no longer supported His morality. And as such, God removed them forcibly from that land. He did shower His blessing upon them 70 years later by letting them return. I'm sure they were so happy and thankful and glad that they were again accepting, but might we note they repented in the intervening time. That's the reason God allowed them to return. Our land today is at a moment of decision. You and I need to then actively strive to ensure that we pray for our nation, to pray for its well-being, to pray not only that God will just bless it apart from any of our activities, but that we as a nation will move in the direction that would be in accordance to His Scriptures. As we've noted earlier, God does not promise to be with those who are not with Him. Second Chronicles 15.2 These thoughts challenge us perhaps to ask about another decision. Were there any other matters of ancient Israel that produced a nation in crisis? We've looked at sexual perversion, homosexuality in this instance, Let's look at yet another one. One of the kings in the Old Testament, his name was Manasseh. Maybe you recall a bit about him as he reigned in the book of Second, Chronic, or Second Kings. As one appreciates some of the specifics of his reign, I've listed a few of them on the screen for your consideration. If one were to count Athaliah, that would make this man Manasseh the 14th king of Judah. As he reigned, he had a rather storied heritage. His father was Hezekiah, one of the most notable of the kings of ancient Judah, a man who on one occasion was said to be reigning in a way that was in accordance to God's will. As Manasseh assumes the throne, 
He began to reign at a fairly early age, merely the age of 12. And it wasn't long before the activities of his reign were very clearly to be seen. In fact, in 2 Kings 21, I'd like to read with you a verse or two, some of the specifics about that chapter. In verse 16 of that chapter, we read this. Let me begin in verse 11. Because Manasseh, king of Judah, hath done these abominations, and hath done wickedly above all that the Amorites did, which were before him, and hath made Judah also to sin with his idols. If we pause there and notice, here is the God of heaven affirming that this king, namely Manasseh, has done worse than the Amorites, that very nation of people that we just discussed earlier that God cast out of Canaan because of their immorality and wickedness. Here's Manasseh encouraging Israel to do similarly. God goes on to say, Therefore thus saith the Lord God of Israel, verse 12, Behold, I am bringing such evil upon Jerusalem and Judah, that whosoever heareth of it, both his ears shall tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the line of Samaria, and the plummet of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as a man wipeth a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will forsake the remnant of mine inheritance and deliver them into the hand of their enemies. And they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies because they have done that which was evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came forth out of Egypt even unto this day. God thus says, because Manasseh has now engaged in this activity, brought it upon Israel and they have chosen to follow. God said, I'm going to wipe Jerusalem like a man wipes a dish. I'm going to remove it from its place. I'm going to remove my blessings from it. Isn't that frightening? To think about God looking upon yet one more time His own people now. This isn't Amorites anymore, His people. This nation of individuals, Judah. And God said, the cup is full again. This time it's Judah's cup that's full. And I'm going to destroy it. As one appreciates what Manasseh allowed to happen, verse 16 tells us one of the sins that Manasseh was guilty of was this one. Moreover, Manasseh shed innocent blood very much till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other. Beside his sin wherewith he made Judah to sin in doing that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. Apparently, the list of things Manasseh had done was rather lengthy. But the Holy Spirit chose to list this one in particular. He shed innocent blood in Judah. So much so, he filled Jerusalem one end to the other with it. Here was a man who, though he was the king of Judah, had little respect for life, it would seem, and filled Jerusalem with blood that was innocent. God said, I'm going to punish Manasseh. I'm going to destroy Judah for this. The cup was again full. The realization of that thought leads me to notice again in that chapter what things might that mean for you and me. Are, is there a parallel to our day? Are there considerations that might be significant? Perhaps these parallels would be an interesting thought. Are there any instances today that you can think of in which innocent blood is shed? Might I submit one? The act of abortion. 
beginning in January of 1973, the Supreme Court of our land legalized murder. Not murder now of anybody, but murders of babies. January of 1973, and since that time, almost 50 million babies have been murdered. Almost 50 million. That's more than every soldier in every war in all the wars America has fought. That's more than every one of the casualties, by far, not even close. And yet that's been legal. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing to think about how that in this country our thoughts about the respect for life have become so twisted and have become of such character that we will openly permit and turn a blind eye to it and even defend it if it comes to it, the murder of babies. It's a shocking thing. Notice that in Manasseh's day he shed innocent blood and for that God answered. For that, God responded with a means of destruction. Again, I ask, how long will it be before God sees our cup is full in support of things such as abortion and homosexuality in which these matters are allowed to run as they are? I mentioned a minute ago in, that, in the statistics of the numbers since January of 73. It is amazing that that degree of number, almost 50 million, is such that it challenges the very thinking to even imagine it, that thousands every day meet that end. We're destroying our young people, killing them one by one. Who knows but what those youngsters may have had such a bright future. Could one of them have discovered a cure for cancer? Could one of them have discovered some other tremendous activity and yet we snuffed out the life before it was even born? The Bible makes no mistake of the fact God recognizes that life in the womb of the mother. In texts such as Isaiah 49 verse 1, in texts such as Jeremiah 1 verses 4 and 5, God expressly said, I formed thee in the womb. And furthermore, he said, I knew thee, in Psalm 139, even before all thy members were complete. In the formative stages of that baby in the womb of the mother, God knows it. And he said, even before all of its members are yet fully formed, I know it. Doesn't that speak greatly about how special and how precious and how wonderful that life in the womb of a mother is? And yet to think that we live in a land that openly supports the destruction of that life. It is a tragedy beyond description. Notice that God did not allow that to proceed onward in Judah. He destroyed it. How long will it be before America's cup is full? May we rise up in righteous indignation against those who would support these things. May we rise up in power and might to encourage the hands of those who have an opposition to them. As I mentioned earlier, let us pray for our nation. Let us beseech God that He would shower upon us not only the open blessings of which we so often pray, but to have Him give us a wake-up call so that those who would have an idea to support things such as this would come to their senses. It is rampant immorality. Not only praying for our nation, but let's in our own families encourage one another in strength for the Word of God. May we do so by appreciating that God's Word is the truth forever and always. In the realization of matters such as these, it is a somewhat challenging thing to notice what happened to the Amorites what happened to Israel, and what might happen to us. You and I have the decision, at least in the pocket of this community in Putnam County, 
or in Jackson County, wherever you may be, to help defend the truth of God in matters such as these and to defend it in ways that might make a difference as we look forward to the opportunities to do that. Perhaps we can summarize our lesson today by reminding ourselves of these things. These records of the Old Testament are not just arbitrary. And again, Paul noted what was written aforetime was written for our learning. We should learn value and valuable lessons from these things and strive to, in fact, incorporate into our lives the mentality and the ideals that would encourage us in the way that would lead to the correct respect for our nation, that God would continue to look upon it with brightness, look upon it with might, and to help us enjoy many of the things we've enjoyed for so long now. When Israel lost her nation, all we need to do is look in the book of Lamentations. And in fact, the name of the book is very leading, isn't it? Lament. Jeremiah lamented over Judah and over Jerusalem. And why did he lament? He said, we have sinned. Lamentations 5-7. The fault was the fact God had given them the laws, but they had refused to follow. Let that not be true of America. May we again strive ardently and zealously to have a nation that God will bless for our children and grandchildren as He has blessed it for us. The decisions in regard to those things do rest with us. Are you a Christian today then? Are you an individual appreciative of the truth of God and having obeyed it, incorporated it into your life? If we could be of assistance to you in your obedience initially to the gospel today, Realize the Lord Jesus came that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly, John 10, verse 10. Believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess His name as a Son of God and be baptized. Upon so doing, you will know the rich reward that God has in store for those that are His children. If you have become a Christian at some time but have wandered from the fold, just like that lost sheep in Luke 15, the Lord wants you back home he searches, but you must respond. As you begin that response today, He will in fact be with you, will pray for you. We will in fact assist you in praying for your strength. Today, if we could be of a help to you in either of these ways, we'd be honored to do it. Would you not let it be known if you would while together we stand and while we sing?